1: Patrice O'Neil was one of my favorite per- people in the world to make laugh because he didn't laugh at anybody. And I remember one night on Tough Crowd, uh, and it's ironic because the thing that they were talking about was that women were turning into men, which brings us to right now what's going on with Chappelle and everything. So back then, so they were saying, you know, women are turning into men right now. And I and I and was I knew it was my time. I was like, I go, what are you talking about? I go, men are turning into women. Right, uh, right now, too. I go, look at Patrice. He's transforming into Aretha Franklin as we speak. <laughs> and, and he fell over laughing and I was like, yes!
2: Hey,
0: everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz, again, like a broken record that I am. Thank you guys so much for all your support and everything that you do to make this podcast special. I appreciate all the comments, the letters, the FedExes, the packages, the emails, the social media messages. I'm just really, really happy that you guys still, after all these years, find relevance and comfort and information and knowledge within these interviews. It's the only reason that I started doing it. It's the only reason that I keep doing it. So thank you so much. If you'd like to reach me, you can do so at Instagram or Twitter, or you can reach me on my website at berrycats.com. Today's episode is really special for me because it involves somebody from the past that I knew in Boston, I knew in New York, and I've known in Los Angeles. And I'm talking about Sue Costello, incredibly talented stand-up comedian, actress, and her experiences through starting comedy and what it's like to get the call and what it's like to train in the beginning for that moment that comes to you that you're least expecting but hoping for and how you can handle it and increase your chances of success train for that special special time when you get the call so that when it happens you're as ready as possible for it. I know you're gonna love this episode, so without further ado, let's get it started, and let me introduce my special guest. Sue Costello is an actress, comedian, writer, and producer. She grew up in the Dorchester area of Boston, Massachusetts. After graduating from the University of Massachusetts with a bachelor's degree in theater arts, Sue began her career as a stand-up comedian in Boston, later relocating to Manhattan. Sue has appeared on countless television shows, including NYPD Blue and Tough Crowd with Colin Quinn. Sue is also a guest host on NBC's critically acclaimed late-night show Later, and has performed her stand-up on Comedy Central. After starring in two television pilots for CBS, Sue earned her very own self-titled television series, Costello, in which she also produced and co-created. After her early success, she wanted to continue her vision for Costello and created hashtag I am Sue Costello. A touching and funny first person play about the roller coaster ride of her life. Sue also continues to be relevant and stay interconnected with her own weekly podcast of the same name, which covers a broad range of topics from comedy to lifestyle and everything in between. As I sit here before Sue Costello, she may be petite in stature. She is powerful when it comes to bringing the funny, and truly, truly a force of nature when it comes to talking any subject of the business. Her raw power mixed with her vulnerability makes her voice distinct yet approachable at the same time. From her Boston accent to her tell it like it is demeanor, you can't help but feel like you're laughing with your best friend. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today. What an honor. Brace yourself. Sue Costello.
1: Drumroll. I'm happy to be here. I haven't seen you in forever.
0: I know, what is forever? Do you remember the last time you saw me?
1: No, I really don't.
0: I have this fascinating feeling that comes over me every time I see you. So can I share it with you? Sure. Okay. First of all, if it's not obvious, Sue clearly is from Peoria, Illinois. No, (laughs) I'm kidding. She's from Boston, Massachusetts. And I spent my formative years there doing a lot of different things in comedy. And Sue really made a name for herself there and then in New York and then all over the country and fascinating stuff. So I just want to tell you how I always feel when I'm around you.
1: Okay. I'll brace myself.
0: First of all, I've always felt completely comfortable around you. Yet, you've always had a way about you that I'm sure other people weren't sure where they stood. Now, even if I wasn't sure where I stood... I always felt comfortable with you. I never felt intimidated by you. A lot of people felt intimidated yes, by you. I'm
1: learning that now. I didn't um, realize it, but yes.
0: But there was always this mutual thing that I felt with you. There's this energy. It was like two ships to pass on the night and they never met in the middle. But you know, I always admired what you were doing from afar and your drive, the force and the power that you put towards things. And I was always fascinated by how you went about your business, how you made things happen, how you accomplished the things you did. Because there were other people, as you know, that were working and coming up in the ranks with you Mm
2: -hmm.
0: that were, I would say, very, very skilled, but they couldn't break through
2: Mm -hmm.
0: and you broke through. And even you with your unbelievable confidence. When you did break through, you knew that you passed some other people that had been doing it longer, that sometimes would go on and get that standing ovation Mm -hmm. at the club. Mm -hmm. And this unspoken thought process of like, how come that guy can't make it? How come that guy can't pass everybody? But I did. What did I do to get to where I am? And then you also look at the people who you start with who couldn't break through even the level to get to where you were or near where you were. And they never could seem to ever break through. They had a spark.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: There was something about them that was unique and special Mm -hmm. that you would see and I would see, but they just didn't put it together and they sort of fizzled out and you didn't see them anymore. So the first thing I want to ask you is, what do you think the qualities were about you? that You didn't tell anybody that you kept inside that helped you to navigate those difficult waters where there were a lot of great people, a lot of people in the back with their cigarettes going, it's not her time.
1: It's funny you're saying that, because I know you're going to ask me about the people that I am inspired by, but the people that I've been inspired by are the people that had all those people with the cigarettes saying, <laughs> <laughs> had all the crabs in a bucket, I would call them. Um, I, it's my love for humanity. That's what I would say the difference. I love people. That's the difference.
0: So, you think your love for people is what helped you pass the people that were around your level of skill set?
1: Yes, my ability to take the hits and continue to love humanity, my ability to keep taking the hits and not let it get me bitter or even when I'm, and I, I've had conversations with people, which I didn't, I only knew what it was like to be inside of me. So I didn't know how other people experience You know there's the a joke
0: there somewhere.
1: <laughs> I know, probably something sexual. <laughs> um, so I didn't know, I only experienced the world the way that I did. So in terms of uh, a lot of times with the TV stuff, taking a meeting, I, I, Ruthanne Secunda was my agent from UTA at the time.
0: Can I, can I uh, set this up? Yes, yes, yes. Ruthanne Secunda is a tremendous agent, and she started her career from what I remember at Abrams Artists, because Mm -hmm. I think my first eight clients that I had Mm -hmm. were represented by her. And then she left Abrams Artists, which is now called A3 but a bunch of people from there Ruth Ann Secunda Martin Lysak, yep, Martin. and a few other people left and they went to United Talent Agency
1: But they went with went to United Talent Agency with me I'm the one that brought her we were a package in a way
0: Explain because that my TV to the people. deals
1: my TV deals I had a, I, I was making a tremendous amount of money in TV so that's how we both got to go to UTA but She we she brought me to UTA and then she got the job
0: So When an agency does a deal with a comedian or an actor, and the agency represents the star of the show, who oftentimes is the creator or the co-creator of the show, and they represent the showrunner or the executive producer or the person who works with the comedian to help shape and create the show. They'll get what's called the full package, which gives them a percentage of the license fee or the entire amount of money for the show, and they don't take a commission from the artist. If the agency represents just the artist or just the showrunner, then they'll get what's called the half package, which is half of the money, which is still significant, and they still won't take a commission from the artist. When an agent does a deal through their agency and then they move to another agency, from what I understand, they cannot take that money or that package away from the agency that they work with, they had a contract with, and bring that money over to the new agency. But the new agency is allowed to renegotiate that contract And anything over and above what's made there, that agency can commission. So keep going with your story.
1: So that's how, But so when we would do literally like 10 pitch meetings, but people don't know the backstory with me. So you say like, oh, she made it before everybody like, I'll, I'll set the stage.
0: That's why we're here.
1: I know I'll set the stage for, so I was teaching aerobics to old ladies when I first started, when I first moved to New York, that was my job.
0: Wait a second, time out. What? You didn't do any comedy I, in, in Boston.
1: I did comedy in Boston, and I saw the sexism in Boston, why and I said, would. "I'm not staying here." But
0: why did you neglect that part of the story? All right, I started
1: doing stand up in Boston, and back in Boston, we were with the Boston comedians. There's nobody trained like us. I'll say that till I die.
0: So tell the people who so the, he- the people who you worked with. So I worked with,
1: uh, I came up with uh, Billy Martin, who now produces Bill Maher's show. I came up with uh, guys. a guy called Kevin Knox. A lot of them died. Kevin uh, Knox, uh, Fitzy. Um, who else did I start Fitzy. With? Fitzy. Do you remember David Fitzgerald? Yes. And they were the headliners at the time. So back when, we, when I started doing comedy, it was much different than it is now because the headliners were the hosts. And they were never threatened. Like now there's no real hierarchy, so there's a lot more competition. But back then, they were the headliners. They were never gonna not be the headliners. So they were, they were more helpful to us. So they would host the shows.
0: Who were the women who were popular there in Boston? There were a the lot time. of
1: women that were popular. Um, let me think, Kathy Byron started with me. Uh, there was one other woman called Linda that I can remember. And Julie, Julie and Linda, and I can't remember their last names, but those are the two. Julie women. Barr. Julie Barr and and the other woman who used to—I remember her joke still about putting the head back in the, uh, in the hair salon get when you get your hair washed. Oh, I wish I could remember her name, but that's it. There were two women. But the reason when I really saw the sexism was when um, Ellen Claycorn came to NYX to host.
0: Ellen Cleghorn was I believe the first African American woman on Saturday Night Live.
1: Yes, and she came to uh, Headline and Kevin Knox was hosting. And in Boston there were so many there were so many clubs. You could Nick's was uh, right down the street from Comedy Connection and then Dick Dory's Comedy Vault was around the corner and then Stitches was in Kemble Square. You could get there were tons of clubs. But on the weekends the guys would go from Nick's to uh Comedy Connection and back up and down. And so uh, it came time to El- to introduce Alan Claycoin and Kevin didn't show up. And they had me introduce her. I had just started doing stand-up. I was terrified to go on the stage and introduce her, but they, made- they had me do it. And I just remember thinking, oh, God. Oh, God, the sexism is horrific. This is horrible. I can't stay in Boston.
0: Now, you felt it was sexist because he was working at the other club and they might have bumped him or made his set go long and he didn't get back in time. No, I think he sabotaged her. Oh, you think he did?
1: Absolutely, 100%.
0: Do you know that for a fact?
1: No, I said I think it at 100%, absolutely. Okay. (laughs) Uh Yes.
0: Now, wouldn't it be funny if... Well, he
1: died, so he can't defend himself. So that's, you know... Wouldn't it
0: be funny if Kevin's spirit came down Mm -hmm. and said, you know, what happened that night was Lenny Clark did extra time and i got on stage and i'm on stage and they're telling me to stretch and i've got to go over there and they have nobody and there's no phone for me to call somebody on stage and so he could have
1: gotten off stage and done his job for ellen claycorn that's what i would have done
0: was ellen upset
1: yes she knew we all knew we all know come on barry Come on now. I mean, where the, the poster of me that, that's on Twitter that you have on your desk is all the guys and
0: me. That's right.
1: That's how it always why works. Why do that's...
0: you think I put you on that poster?
1: I know. You guys, I always. it's funny. You say that duality, right? I've always got that duality. The what? guys always have me close to them, but not, they're like, we'll bring Sue, but.
0: Why do you think I put you on there? I don't know why. Because you belong there.
1: Yes. And it's funny because now people looking back after all the time and all the stuff that's gone on with Me Too and Time's Up, they're like, Sue Costello's is a badass. They, they're writing it all underneath it. Now they're seeing it from a different perspective now, seeing that I came up with all the guys. And, the, and it's always been me, me with all the guys on Tough Crowd, me on Artie Lang's podcast, me on Brewer's podcast. Jay Thomas had me on all the time. But not only that, I got trained. So instead of being upset about it, i this is what I'm good at. I'm good at taking the hit to get the information. So I would be around all the guys and I would just watch and I learned very well how to not uh, not react when there was a lot of men. A lot of times your reaction is to, to wanna be, to react. And so what I learned how to do is wait and then get the joke in, wait and get the joke in. And I was around, I mean, how many of the most like aggressive, intelligent, hilarious men?
0: Tell our audience, something that somebody said on a radio show or a live thing or tough crowd or whatever it was that even you as strong and powerful as you were it was so smart so cutting edge so brutal a cut down that even you were like got home and you're on your couch in the fetal position saying man that never, guy crushed me never, like a bug tonight. Never, never.
1: Because I always say that the uh, if the insult is funnier than the insult, it, the, then it's funny. So I would roll out. We would, that was the whole reason why Tough Crowd worked so much, because we would insult each other, but it was always funny. So you couldn't help but laugh. Patrice O'Neill was one of my favorite per- people in the world to make laugh, because he didn't laugh at anybody. And I remember one night on Tough Crowd, uh, we were sitting there getting our, we, so there were three, there were three, uh, four uh, segments on Tough Crowd. They would do the opening with Colin, then we'd have two rounds of us talking, and then the fourth uh, segment, we had to talk to the camera. And so we were, I was getting prepped for my fourth segment, and across the uh, prompter, it said Sue Costell's Flat Ass. And I said to the to the producer, I said, what is that? what is that? And she said, oh, never mind, you don't need to know what that is. I said, what is that? And she goes, it's Patrice's fourth segment. And so I'm like, okay, so he's going to do his whole thing about my flat ass. And it was when Colin had us standing, like they would try all different things and we were, it was so awkward. We were standing instead of sitting. And I remember the whole time I was just like foaming at, I was like, I'm going to get Patrice. I'm going to get him so good. I'm going to get, and it's ironic because the thing that they were talking about was that women were turning into men. Which brings us to right now, what's going on with Chappelle and everything. So back then, so they were saying, you know, women are turning into men right now, and I and I was I knew it was my time. I was like, I go, what are you talking about? I go, men are turning into women right uh, right now too. I go, look at Patrice, he's transforming into Aretha Franklin as we speak, <laughs> and and he fell over laughing, and I was like, yes. <laughs> so it was always that idea of like um, wanting to be funny or wanting to get them back. You had to be clever though; you couldn't just be. If you're just vicious, it's not funny. we that was what that's what people that's what people like about comedians that we're able to be in the moment that we're able to not not be in the fetal position that I really think that that's why people love comedians.
0: And I think you're right. so I love sitting across from somebody who what feels like one moment they're like. Going into that huge gallon water jug for pennies to figure out what they're going to get for lunch or dinner that mm-hmm. night. And then, what seems like the next moment, they're wearing the shoes with the red on the bottom mm-hmm. and they have handbags that are worth $5,000. Mm-hmm. And you experience that trajectory. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, I was. T- Teaching aerobics to old ladies. So I was in Boston. I said, I'm out of here. I'm going to New York. And I, uh, it was, I, I never knew the full story until I did Artie Lang's podcast of, of the night that, that I got discovered, if you will. I was purposely, and let me tell you this too, people don't know this, I purposely was hiding myself. I wasn't trying to be famous. I, I didn't feel emotionally ready. I was like, I'm going to go down to, to New York and do, and I did not open mic is essentially what I did.
0: Which place did you start? At Caroline?
1: So, so, I was teaching aerobics to these women and um, I got on Andy Engel's New Talent Night For at Caroline. For those of you who don't
0: know, Andy Engel is one of the most extraordinary, wonderful, <laughs> huggable, lovable guys who runs these New Talent Nights all over New York City and all these classes and has always been incredibly successful and supportive of many comics who are huge stars today.
1: And Caroline's was the big club. That's it's in practically in Times Square and it was a big club. Which is owned by Caroline
0: Caroline Hirsch and also Andrew Fox and Louis Ferranda, who's the entertainment director for that and the New York Comedy Festival, who I can just hear his voice saying, Catsy! I can't believe you got Sue Costello on your show and you don't have me. I you totally
1: would say that. Is
0: that about?
1: <laughs>
0: I deserve to be there
1: before her, Catsy. And have the cigarette, too. You got to yeah. do the call yeah. back to the it person sitting insane. on the side, like, yeah. why well, Sue get to be there? So, um, so uh, remember, Luna Lounge was the alternative comedy uh-huh. show that was, was downtown. It was like
0: the Largo of New York.
1: Yes, and so uh, Luna Lounge had gotten canceled. So I had the old ladies, so I had nobody to come to my show. You have to bring fifteen people. That's they started with the bringer thing back when, when I was You couldn't have up. an
0: aerobics class with the uh, I with brought the, open the old
1: ladies to the Carolines. Oh, okay. I brought I had to bring fifteen people, so I told the ladies they had to come. Okay. And so the blueheads were in the audience and I went on stage and I did my did my set. But I didn't know that everybody from L- uh Luna Lounge, because it had gotten cancelled, came to watch the New Talent Night. And so I didn't have the nervousness that you would normally have if you knew that the industry was watching you.
0: Mm -hmm. So
1: I was just totally naturally myself. Plus, it was the old ladies in the audience. I already knew them.
0: So you go on stage there. If you had to guess, how many times had you been on stage up till that point? Oh, probably thousands. Thousands. Yeah,
1: in Boston.
0: Thousands. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah.
0: All right. Doing your 10,000 hours.
1: (laughs) Yeah. All right. So what happens that night? So then... uh, Ken, why can't I think of Ken? Ken
0: Trouche. Ken Trouche. Ken uh, (laughs) Trouche, a a really uh, great... We should be
1: doing this as a cartoon.
0: (laughs) Ken Trouche is a really great manager who started in New York City and had this great eye for alternative talent, talent that was more into the sketch world, more into that and less in the stand-up. And he became really successful right away. He had like three, four, five people who got television series and-
1: And so he saw me and then he, they got the tape from that night and then he got with Ann involved and then they sent it to LA. And then that's when I, so the pitch meeting- So you
0: signed with Ken.
1: I signed with Ken.
0: Even though he really only represented people who were more in the sketch world. Yeah, I liked him. He is, was a nice guy. I liked guy. him as a
1: person. And he I was a nice like, guy. Yeah.
0: And so he was working with Ruthann at the time. He
1: brought me to Ruthann Got it. to be the agent. And then they sent the tape to uh, L.A. And then to I had To who it, in L.A.? They sent it to everybody. They sent it to,
0: to all the networks, the networks everybody,
1: student. everybody. And so uh, I had to fly. They were flying me out. I think, I don't remember if, some, if they flew me out the first time or not, but I know that I didn't have anything to wear.
0: Didn't have anything to wear. To the meetings. Give you all the great special guests and even give you one-on-one private consultations to help you expand enhance and skyrocket your comedy career just go to barrycats.com and click on blueprint for success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that i've created just for you with it we can take your career so far that one day instead of listening to this podcast you'll be interviewed on it. So Ruthann let you borrow her clothes? No, the
1: old ladies did.
0: The old ladies did.
1: I wore one of so the old you, ladies' suits, So you wear too. a spandex
0: and a fake <laughs> no, rabbit like coat? No, a,
1: like a, leisure, like a, you know, a, a leisure jacket. Suit. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh,
0: okay. so you go, <laughs> so you go to L.A. in a leisure suit, like Jay Leno's first time show. <laughs> I mean, I
1: also had $3,000 in the bank. I have to, I had, it was at Midland Bank. That's more than I had. I would only have three, I would always have three, like I couldn't let it drop below $3,000. Why not? I don't know. I just thought as long as I have that $3,000, I'm good. And so I had $3,000 in the bank and I borrowed the old lady's outfit. And then I don't know, it's also my... um, All right,
0: so what year is this?
1: This is probably 1997, 1996.
0: Got it. Okay. So you have all these meetings with the networks or are some Dean of them studios? Valentine. No,
1: perfect example is Dean Valentine's the head of Dean Disney Valentine the was
0: the head of Touchstone Disney. I, at the time, I had a four year executive producer deal at Disney when you were meeting with Dean. Oh, wow. So you meet with different studios first, not networks. So you meet with Disney. Who else do you meet with? But
1: I was like Machiavellian in my approach, but I didn't have any idea that what I was doing. I was just being myself. You're saying
0: no one prepared you for the meetings. No one sat down. No. No. Ken or Ruthann didn't say, "Okay, we're going to do a practice pitch. No. No? No.
1: This is what I mean. I took like 10 pitch meetings a day and I didn't realize that other people couldn't do it or they needed to be prepped. I never really needed to be prepped. I don't know if it was cuz I didn't know any better, but on uh, my personality, it's just it's just my naturalness. So I go in and I meet Dean Valentine and he has a big uh, humidor. humor door. And I go, "Hey, I like cigars." And he goes, "Uh, well, you want to you want to smoke a cigar?" And I go, "All right, we were outside on the patio." Yeah,
0: he had the cigar patio.
1: Lying on lounge chairs smoking cigars. With, I mean, that's like a sitcom in and of itself. And the way they would always do that is they would make it irreverent. But I wasn't, I wasn't, so they would take that and put it on TV as if it was.
0: But this is what happened. And you you did your deal with Disney?
1: No. And so we were smoking cigars. I remember he said to me, how much do you cost?
0: But he made an (laughs) offer for you. You He made an offer. You didn't take it. No. Do you know why he made the offer for you? Because you did something. That was very rare for a comedian to do, especially, you know, somebody who, you are know, going there as a woman, you want to present, you're in this bind, do I be really edgy and funny, or do I be more feminine? What do I, how do I handle things when this is, this guy who's the head of the thing? And you took the risk and you said, I like cigars, let's smoke a cigar. Right then and there, he was making the offer for you.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That's how I got The Fighter, too. That's how I got the movie The Fighter. That, that, that my love for humanity, but also my ability to, to go a little bit further than everybody, to do. So, you smoke cig- t-
0: cigars with him. Who else did you meet with that you loved? Les Moonves. Now, Les Moonves, for those of you who don't know or don't remember, probably the most powerful man in television. He, when I first started meeting with him, he was the president of Lorimar, then Warner Brothers then CBS and did a lot of deals with him. So, you said that same down with kind him. of thing
1: happened. We had the meeting and I was cold. So they got me one of the page jackets. And looking back now, it's like again, Harry he is looking at me with his branding right on my body, which I didn't do on purpose. And so then uh I went with less. I went with less because he, they he had a pilot Carsi Warner also was a uh, studio at the time. They were doing a show called Townies. They wanted me for Townies, but Townies wasn't on the air yet.
0: Townies is a show that uh, was Bill Burr's first sitcom mm-hmm. he ever auditioned for and booked. It was on for 13 <laughs> episodes with Molly Ringwald. <laughs> I know it feels like I'm like a wealth of information. Yeah, because
1: we, I mean, we. I'm we so lived sorry,
0: everybody. It. I'm not a know it all. I just These are just things that just come But well, we
1: all lived it. That's what everybody's always like. Do you know so and so? I'm like, we all know each other. Every, we all, we've been doing this for a long time. So. Um, CBS had a pilot that was uh, written by Juliet New- Julia Newton, and it was a Boston pilot that that Les had already ordered to pilot, and then Townies hadn't even been written yet. I met the guy who was going to write it, but I wasn't sure, and so I felt every decision I made was based on like a good business decision too, because would- that made sense to me. I liked Les; they already had the pilot. It was already they were already going to make it, and but, I liked
0: Julia. But also, when there's more than one offer, there's what's called a bidding war and there's people who are the money goes up a lot so when there's two or more the money can go up it can double Mm -hmm. and so you have to decide whether you Go with the money or where the creative spirit feels right well and sometimes sometimes it's both
1: yeah because if they're investing a lot of money they're going to be invested too so it, it depends but i just knew that it was already ordered to pilot so the chances of the other one it was a bigger risk because it might not have even made a pilot
0: so you think netflix who has six billion dollars to spend on programming on a bad day you think that if they put money into your special they're going to put you know. All the attention towards it or whatever. I mean, they've always. No, lot I said blood. sometimes.
1: Sometimes. Oh, that sometimes. Happens. Yeah, some, you never know. But sometimes that is the case, too. It's not. Nothing's a guarantee. I don't
0: that. know myself, to be honest with you. No. Maybe the way it's structured in certain companies every area is their own entity and they have their own budgets and mm-hmm. they do care equally about everything. So you take CBS.
1: But you'll have tons of people say that they've had specials that weren't marketed correctly and everything as well. So.
0: Yeah. So you, you go with them and... So I go to uh, CBS, I shoot the pilot. Wait, time out. Okay. When you're doing the process, you do the deal. When you get the call and they say, we're at this amount of money, we can't go any further. Are you stunned at the amount of money? Or are you like, oh, that's... that's... Well, the
1: money never was never drove, drove so me. So it
0: didn't matter to you.
1: It didn't drive... It never... It was a driving so, force because I knew that I had, the $3,000 was more manageable for me than- So
0: if the deal was $3,000, you would be <laughs> I okay. got
1: 3001 <laughs>
0: So would
1: be okay. not that be funny if I didn't know any better? And I'm like, oh, okay, that's better than the 3000 I had. As long as I have 3000 No, I, I forget how much it was, but it was probably- yeah, No, you, was, you don't have
0: to say how much it was. But it was 100.
1: a lot of money, but then on top of that, you've given away a lot of money in your percentages, you get taxed, and, and this is a big thing that happened. You get taxed in a tax bracket as if you were making that money every year. That's one thing that people don't know about ours. So when you get a deal that sounds like a lot of money, you're giving away percentages. So I had, I mean, as soon as you get the deal, you get all these people, you get 35%. I, in my play, I have a, I'm on the phone with my brother and I'm like, it's fine. This is one of the lines I have. And I go, it's fine. I go, my agent was there. I no, I said, I have money now. I'll talk to my business manager. And I go, I don't know. He's just some guy that they told me I need to take care of my money. And I go, he gets 5%. I'm talking to my brother. And I go, Jimmy, it's fine. I go, my agent introduced me to him I go, she gets 10%. <laughs> I go, my my man. I go. My, I know it's all legal because my lawyer was there. He gets 5%. <laughs> I go, my manager gets 15%. This is how it goes in Hollywood. And everybody loves it. They laugh when I say that. So you get that going off the top. So you get the 35. Now, back when, when I was doing the TV deals, you could write off your percentages. Now you can't even write off your percentages. So you give away the percentage of the money and then you get taxed at a 55% tax. Now why
0: can't you write off your percentage? I don't
1: know. Now you can't.
0: In every state? I think
1: so. I think unless you're have you have to go move to, to Puerto Rico. Yeah. You'll unless okay. you go to Puerto Rico. So, so everybody thinks it's a lot of money. And so realistically
0: not a lot of money. No.
1: I mean, if you really look at it, $6
0: on a bucket of chicken. No, but
1: it's saying. like, you've been working for how many years doing stand up, making nothing. And then all of a sudden you get that and you spread that out over the years that you worked. It's not
0: in success though, when your episodes get on yes. television, yes. that's a different story. Yes. So, Okay. So you do the deal. And then the next step is, I just want to make sure I understand back in the time when you met with Les, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: he was representing the studio.
1: He was representing the network. Because you could either make a deal with a studio or a network. They were separate entities. Now they're all...
0: So then he was at the network.
1: Mm -hmm. He was the head of the network.
0: In 97. I I, I don't know why I thought he was at the studio then. Okay.
1: No, he's at the network.
0: All right. So he's at the network, and so the next step that has to happen is they have to bring this deal together with a studio. Mm-hmm. A studio is the one who's going to deficit the pilot if it goes mm-hmm. and sue's deal 50% with the network. Mm-hmm. So did they just lay it off on CBS Productions, or did you meet with different studios besides them?
1: Well, the pilot was already in made. I was only cast in the pilot, so I wasn't... It wasn't a development deal it was just casting
0: oh okay because this is the thing so normally what happens when you do a deal Mm -hmm. is you can pass on two things and then the third thing you have to take it Mm -hmm. so you can pass on the offer to be a part of something and be cast in it or you can and wait to do your own thing that you create Why did you choose to be cast in another person's show?
1: Because it was already going to pilot, and I loved it. It was about Boston already.
0: God, how many people were in the show, and who were the actors? Clark Gregg
1: was my boyfriend. I made out with him. He was like, we 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 auditioned so many hot guys, and he was the hottest. He had the most like zhuzh.
0: Did you have to make out with him every audition?
1: No, just on no every aud. Oh, every guy? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I know why that's wrong. That'd be funny if I didn't know. Uh, that's what they told I'm me. I'm always had to
0: fascinated do. about this because you because you you have the boyfriend in the pilot,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and you haven't kissed at all. Even in rehearsal, sometimes you don't kiss. Mm-hmm. So then it's the night of the show, and you know the taping, and then you got to kiss, and then you got to redo the scene once, twice, three times, sometimes five times. Are you nervous for your first kiss with the guy? No, the-
1: because by the time this, you're shooting the show, the en- adrenaline's so it's actually a good move to not do anything until that because they, it'll be more natural just like we shouldn't talk before we do the podcast cuz you want the energy when you're shooting it. It's like your job. You like you got you're not going to mess around. At least I'm not going. to. You just have to do it. I mean, I've done I've kissed people in movies too. You just have to
0: Now, there's this interesting thing that happened. The audience might know the story, but When Jay Moore was doing Jerry Maguire, he got picture perfect with Jennifer Mm -hmm. Aniston and the schedule was such that he had to leave his last day of shooting on Jerry Maguire, fly to New York, get in makeup. And the first scene he had was kissing Jennifer Aniston. Mm -hmm. And so he's about to leave and he knocks on Tom Cruise's trailer. And he says, Tom, can I ask you some advice? And he says, Sure, come in, Jay. And Jay says, Listen, I got the scene I got to make out with Jennifer Aniston. Mm-hmm. I don't know what to do. I don't know her. I've never met her. I just got to go right to the set and do this. Do I kiss her with just my lips? Do no I tongue. kiss her with my tongue? <laughs> do I be passionate? Do I be not passionate? Do I give her the soap opera kiss? How, what do I do? What do you think Tom Cruise's advice was? Go for it. Do, get some, what's it called?
1: Mag and Mac on her. <laughs>
0: His advice was always follow the woman's lead. That's
1: smart. That's People should do that in life. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love it. Okay, so you get cast in this pilot. Who else is in the pilot? Anybody we know?
1: Uh, no, but uh, do you want to hear funny? I mean, my whole... Uh, no, I, I want
0: to hear not funny. All
1: I do is tell... I, I remember one night I was at the improv, just like before the pandemic, and Jessica Curzon was there. And I just was sitting there with my arms um, like this. I go, Jessica, I'm going to get on stage and I'm going to talk about how I fucked up my whole career. She goes, please Sue, please do it. And I went on stage and I just told all these stories. And the guy who followed me, I forget who it was, but he's like, Uh, uh I, who even wants to see me? He's like, I'd like to see a whole night of Sue Costello. I'm <laughs> like, because I go inside, instead of trying to, like you say, you know, get ready for the pitch. I do the opposite. I, I talk about all the humiliating stories. So, uh, and I, ta- I told this at the Moth. Um, so the, the pilot was about, um...
0: If you haven't checked out The Moth, Moth is a storytelling <laughs> company that... So many great offshoots of it. Check it out. And also Jessica Kirsten, amazing comedian.
1: So can I swear on this?
0: No. Yes, of course you okay.
1: can. Okay. So, uh, so the joke... So this is my first TV pilot. And again, I just came from teaching the old ladies aerobics. So I have no idea what I'm doing. And I get on the set and the the joke is that I go back to see my old nun in high school, and she has a dog that sniffs everybody's crotches, and so I'm terrified to go back. Well, the way that they got the dog to sniff my crotch was they rubbed hot dogs on my vagina. And so the dog would start, come over, and they trained it to do, and then by Wednesday, so I was there, usually you, you, you do the table read on on Monday, you start blocking on Tuesday, Wednesday, you're uh, you're close to being finished, Thursday, you do the network run through, Friday, you shoot the, the show. So by Wednesday, it was. I walked on set, it was like somebody had died. And all of a sudden, they came up to me and they're like, Sue, <laughs> I'm going to laugh. Sue, <laughs> you, you you, can't you can't go near the dog until Friday. See, the kissing, look okay. it. <laughs> it always comes back, the callback. He goes, you can't go near the dog until Friday. I go, what? They go, the dog is in love with you. This is how weird Hollywood is. I'm like, oh, okay. So the night of the pilot, we do the scene where the dog's supposed to sniff my crotch, and it's a huge dog and the dog is literally violently trying to rape me while the pilot is being shot, like go, like jumping on me, like literally, and I'm, pu- I'm pushing it off me and the audience is going wild. And so it worked for the show. It worked, but it was, I mean, he was bigger than me. He almost overpowered me. <laughs> and then he, then I ran out and then the dog ran out behind me and I was backstage and the dog had mounted me like, and put his paws here like party train, like we were doing. And I was like, I have to go back out and show the audience. And so I walked back out with the dog attached to me and the audience went absolutely wild. And I remember thinking, J-Lo comes to Hollywood and she gets a Bentley. I come to Hollywood and I get fucked in the ass by a bass and hound.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Just the word bass and hound, funny. You could pick any dog, Basset hound, funny. So you shoot the pilot, you're feeling good about it. What happened?
1: Doesn't get picked up.
0: Doesn't get picked
1: no, up. No, but-, but- And you want to hear hear funny, Les Moves called me at home with Bill Cosby in his office. Wow. Saying that I was a superstar.
0: Did Bill watch the show too? Yes. That's fantastic. That I
1: was a sitcom star. So everything that I got, as much as you say I might have got it before other people, was based on my performance.
0: Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. So just go to berrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever.
1: I never got anything well, that worked. But you never easy.
0: acted before in your life. I How went you to know school I... for theater. I know, but you never walked onto a set with cameras. No, but so that's I...
1: the fearlessness in me. That is, that's absolutely. You were nervous. If I was, and that might be the Boston in me. If I was, it's not time for it. I'll feel it after the fact or something.
0: How do you handle things? You're on the set for the first time, because a lot of people listening to this might be on their first shoot, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you know that time when you, uh, it's all set, you know, action, everybody's doing their lines and you're the one who fucks up your line Mm -hmm. and the scene is gone like a little bit and you fuck it up Mm -hmm. and they have to stop it. How do you reset yourself?
1: You just, the the thing that people do is they unravel. The thing is don't
0: unravel. Yeah, but how did you not unravel? What's the advice for not unraveling?
1: Well, if you unravel, you're gonna get fight. And mistakes happen. You are better off to make a mistake and just keep it moving make it because all, what happens when you're on a set is everybody gets nervous and insecure you have to hold on to yourself that's what I would say that's why I was the people that I'm inspired by you have to pull it on yourself that's why I love tennis because tennis is a sport where you could be on the on the court for hours and hours and hours and you can have coaches you can have wives kids whatever you can, but you're on that court by yourself and this and you have to keep reaching inside of yourself and keep getting strength and keep. There's nothing. There's nobody going to help you. So that that is what I I have a strength in, in terms of pulling it together, and not getting caught up with, which is also my love of humanity, because I don't I don't take everything as seriously, and I have compassion. I'm like, well, everybody's so nervous. I'll fi- I'll do it. I'll pull it together. So it's that. I guess it's insecurity. You don't. You have to work on the insecurity because the insecurity will just kill you.
0: So Les calls you in his Tells office when Bill Cosby. Sub.
1: Okay, so now, now, Tony's. Uh, did you
0: say to yourself when you got the call? Jesus, I can't believe Bill. He used was, to call I me at be, home be, all the time. I can't believe Bill drugged Les Moves. <laughs> this was <awesome>. No,
1: no <laughs> I'm telling you, Les Moves back then ne- ne- was, oh, I would have told you. you, the least sexual executive I've ever been around. So just for the record, I would have told you that.
0: Um, so he doesn't, he tries to do another deal with you?
1: Oh, yeah, not only that. i I'm, I I have so many funny stories about how just they fucking like a pinball. Like they usually like a pinball, right? So uh, so Townies wants me back. And they want But
0: then they get canceled after 13 episodes. No, they this
1: is just starting. They now they got the show that's going to oh, the air. Okay. It's going on the air. They want me to go on the air with Townies.
0: Like a recurring or a regular Play series? Molly
1: Ringwald's sister.
0: Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. so what happens is that she had a CBS deal. After they do the pilot, there's these windows that they can pick up the show or extend it if pilot gets canceled. But when the pilot definitely doesn't get picked up, there's a release date and then other networks can come and get you. And so CBS normally has an option to keep you for a certain amount of money that you normally need to agree to or not. But ABC was townies, so they offered you that. What did you do?
1: So then Les came to me and said he was gonna put me on Murphy Brown.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So now again, same situation, like what's the better business decision, He was gonna right?
0: put you on Murphy Brown doing for what? 13
1: episodes with a backup development deal, playing the bartender.
0: He was gonna give you all 13, not recurring, all 13.
1: All 13 with a backup development deal for my own show. Now, didn't they have
0: a bartender? The, he died the, on the show. Oh.
1: And so I was gonna come in and take over. It was perfect, it was literally perfection because Townies, I didn't know what was gonna happen to it. My humility, my business sense, I was like, I'm going to go on, learn from the best. So what do you do? Murphy Brown. I take Murphy Brown. Okay, now... 13 episodes.
0: All right. So you take... I'm going to
1: learn. I'm going to be on set. I'm going to learn how to be on a TV show. you,
0: You also have heard the rumors that the lead is challenging
1: i never heard any with. of the rumors because i'm just was teaching a, a rubber stole lady so no i never heard so any. not
0: nobody warned you that she was <laughs> no challenging?
1: they never prepped me they never warned me they just said go do your thing so unless
0: never warned you.
1: no because he didn't warn me because he said he was doing it he was
0: he All was right. doing the puppeteering so, okay so tell us the experience of so what he...
1: happened is so then i remember i was in uh new york waiting to go to what were we waiting to do? To do the photo shoot? Oh my God. To do the photo shoot for Murphy Brown and they kept postponing it. They kept postponing it. And then finally they, go, they had me out there for the, for the photo shoot and I remember uh, it was very uncomfortable. <laughs> it was when Lily Tomlin had just come on too so they, she had two new people coming on. So we did the photo shoot. We leave and I'm supposed to go back.
0: How was Lily to you? Was Lily uh, not standoffish?
1: No, and nobody was nice to me.
2: the dreamers. They have all to gain. It's never quite over, so it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your